All right, well, we are pressing on in our teaching series. Uh, This is part six of our teaching series, Legacy. We have been surveying the Bible from cover to cover. Why? Because we believe that we have a legacy handed down to us. And that legacy is handed down to us from the men and women over thousands of years who wrote the Bible who experienced God, who heard him speak, who had the ups and downs of life and saw God move in their life through all of those circumstances. And they wrote it all down for us in the Bible. And that legacy is now handed down to us. And the more that we read the Bible, the more that we'll understand that we fit into that story. We fit into God's story. And that we have a purpose in this life. And that reading the Bible would equip us for that purpose. As your pastor, I want to encourage all of you to read your Bibles every day. And one of the ways that I can help you do that is to help you understand the whole Bible so that when you read it, you're not thoroughly confused. There'll still be some hard parts to understand, but as we survey the Bible, you won't be thoroughly confused. You'll be like, hey, I know what's happening. I remember we talked about this book. We went through this at church. And the more you understand it, the more you're going to read it. And that is the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. So if you look at our slide, we've broken the entire Bible down into eight sections. The first five sections were the Old Testament, and we just wrapped that up last week. We did the minor prophets last week. We talked about Hosea and how his personal life became his prophetic message. So if you missed any of those five teachings, they're all on our website and they're all in our podcast, and you can find any of those and go back and listen to them and catch up. And so today, for part six, we are transitioning into the New Testament, and we're going to look at the four Gospels and the book of Acts. So let's start out with a Bible fact. Each week, I want to give you something new just to help you understand some of the inner workings of the Bible or some of the terminology that we use. And so today, since we're talking about the Gospels, our Bible facts has to do with the problems that are presented to us because we have four different gospels it would be so much easier if there was just one gospel right if why didn't like just the group of leaders get together and just write one gospel give us one story so that there wouldn't be any confusion well here's why because they didn't know they were writing the bible in fact if a bunch of people got together just to write the bible i would question their motives But these guys who wrote the Gospels didn't know they were writing the Bible. They were just inspired by God to write, and they wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit was putting on their hearts to write, and eventually it ended up in the Bible. And so we have four different Gospels, not just one story of Jesus, but four different stories of Jesus. And having four different stories presents us with a couple of problems. The first problem is the differences that we find in the four Gospels. And the skeptics have a problem with the differences. They'll actually point out the differences and try to use those as a way to invalidate the stories of Jesus. They'll say something like, look, this story appears in all four Gospels, but it's different in all four Gospels. Right? Like Mary discovering the empty tomb. It's like one gospel said there was no angels. One gospel said the angels were inside the tomb. One gospel said the angel was sitting on top of the rock outside the tomb. And skeptics will point it out and say, see, these were just made up stories and they're all different. But that's not actually the case. You see, eyewitness testimonies are expected to be different. 
they're never exactly the same. And psychology has showed this, that we used to consider memories like a, a, like a jar on the shelf, like that our brain is a shelf and we have all these memories and we can take down a jar off the shelf and remember it perfectly every time. That's not how our brains work. Our brains process information. And so four different people that are witnessing one scene, they're going to notice different things. They're going to focus on different things. They're going to remember different things. They're going to interpret those things differently. And you're going to get four different stories from eyewitnesses. In fact, if we were in court and a lawyer brought four witnesses in front of the court and all four witnesses told the exact same story, the judge would throw that testimony out of court. Because the only way that four people could tell the exact same story is if they were corroborating with each other and they got together and made sure that they had their story straight before they went to court. The judge expects if there's four witnesses, he expects four stories that are going to have differences in them. But there's a main similarity that weaves through all of them. So the skeptics have a problem with the differences, but we don't. Because we believe the differences actually validate that these are eyewitness testimonies. These were not guys that got together to wrote the Bible. These were guys who were inspired by God, wrote their testimonies from different perspectives, focusing on different things, writing to different audiences. And all four Gospels came out a little bit different. Now we have another problem. If the skeptics have a problem with the differences then scholars have a problem with the similarities. The scholars have a problem specifically with how similar three of the Gospels are. I'm going to introduce a new word to you. The new word is synoptic. Synoptic comes from a Greek word meaning able to be seen together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar as stories that they're called the synoptic Gospels. Because they, they can all be seen together because their stories are so similar. And they're so similar that scholars believe they have to somehow be dependent on each other. There's no way that all three books were written completely separately and came out so similar. In fact, 93% of Mark appears in Matthew and Luke. That's, that's how similar they are. So there's two theories to explain the synoptic gospels. The older theory was called the priority of Matthew. And in this theory, and this was the one that was adopted by the early church, they believed that Matthew was written first, and then Luke borrowed from Matthew when he was writing his gospel, and then Mark summarized both Matthew and Luke into one shorter story. And so that's one theory about how the three synoptic gospels are all related to each other. It's called the priority of Matthew. More modern scholars actually take a different perspective. They call it the priority of Mark. Modern scholars today believe that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke both borrowed from Mark in addition to using their own sources. So these are two theories. Neither one of them is right or wrong. I tend to lead towards the priority of Mark, but you don't have to lean that way. The important thing is that just like we don't have a problem with their differences, we also don't have a problem with their similarities. We understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke somehow shared information from each other's Gospels, and that's how they came out fairly similar. 
Are you guys with me? So we got differences. We got similarities. So let's look at Matthew through Acts. We've got the four Gospels and the book of Acts. What I want to look at with these four Gospels and these five books together could be considered the history books. So just like we had the history books of the Old Testament, these are our history books of the New Testament. In fact, uh, Antonio, can you jump back to our Bible slide? Keeping Antonio on his toes here. We noticed in the Old Testament we had that section of the history books, and then all the other books in the Old Testament, we had to ask the question, where do they fit in the history, right? Where do they fit? Same thing in the New Testament. So you'll notice in the New Testament, we've got those five history books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The rest of the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves the question, where do those books fit into the book of Acts? None of those books fit into the Gospels. They all fit into the book of Acts except Revelation. Revelation was written much later. It was the last book written in the New Testament. So these are the history books. And then the rest of the New Testament, we're going to ask the question, where do these fit into the book of Acts? All right, with that being said, what we're going to do for each of these four Gospels is I want to look at the author of the Gospels, who was the Gospel written to, the audience, how was Jesus portrayed, and what was the purpose of the Gospel. And by looking at that, it's going to give us a greater understanding of why we have four different stories of Jesus. So let's start with Matthew, the author. Who was Matthew? Well, he was one of Jesus' original disciples. He was Jewish, and Jesus redeemed him from his life as a tax collector. And we, we've learned that tax collectors were considered the worst kind of sinners in Israel. So Matthew was rescued from, from his life as a tax collector, became a follower of Jesus, but he was a, a, a Jewish person his whole life. If we believe that Mark was written first, then we're going to estimate that Matthew was written about 60 A.D. Who was Matthew's audience? The Jewish people. Matthew was writing a gospel directly to the Jewish people. Therefore, he portrays Jesus as the king of the Jews. And the purpose of his gospel was to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. In fact, he references the Old Testament 68 times in his gospel, and 12 times he lists a specific prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. The most common phrase in the book of Matthew is, so that it would be fulfilled, right? We read that over and over again. Jesus did this so that it would be fulfilled. Jesus was born here so that it would be fulfilled. Jesus is showing, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew is showing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And so his book is steeped in Old Testament because Jewish people growing up learned the Old Testament and they knew the Old Testament scriptures. And then we have Mark. Mark was not one of the original disciples. However, he had several connections with them. First off, we know that Mark was in the garden the night Jesus was arrested. You'll actually read about it in his gospel. He mentions a young man that was there when Jesus was getting arrested, and that young man ran away into the night. That is Mark referring to himself. So Mark was there the night Jesus was arrested. Mark also traveled on Paul's first missionary journey. 
But he actually left the journey early, which really ticked Paul off. And so they had a falling out for several years until later in Paul's life, they actually restored their relationship. But his strongest connection was with Peter because at the home of Mark's mother was one of the main headquarters of Peter's ministry. So Peter came over to Mark's house all the time. And Mark got to hear from Peter the firsthand stories of walking with Jesus. And so scholars believe that even though Mark wrote the gospel, that most of the gospel came from Peter telling the stories to Mark. So who was Mark's audience? So first off, the dates. If we believe that Mark was written first, then we believe that Mark was written in the late 50s A.D., just before Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels. Mark's audience was Roman citizens. So whereas Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, Mark was writing to the Gentiles. He probably wrote his book in Rome. He was probably with Paul when Paul was there and, uh, and wrote his book to the Roman citizens. Therefore, he presents Jesus as God's servant. He presents Jesus as the one sent from God to serve the purpose of God for mankind. His purpose was to present a very straightforward proclamation of the words and deeds of Jesus that would be easily understood by a non-Jewish audience. Therefore, in Matthew's gospel, there's 68 references to the Old Testament. In Mark's gospel, there's one reference to the Old Testament. 68 to 1. Why? Because Mark was writing to Gentiles, and Gentiles didn't know the Old Testament. So there was no point bringing up the Old Testament to them. He was just trying to present the story of Jesus in a way that they would understand it. So his story is a very fast-moving story. In fact, he uses the word immediately 41 times in his gospel. Mark was all about immediately. He said, then immediately Jesus did this. Then immediately this happened. And then immediately Jesus went over here. And it makes the story feel very fast moving. He leaves out a lot of the long speeches that are in the other gospels. So if you've got somebody who doesn't know anything about the Bible, the best place to send them is to read Mark. Because Mark was written to be understood by people that don't know the Bible. And then we have Luke. Who was Luke? Well, Luke wasn't even Jewish. Luke was a Gentile doctor and historian. Scholars believe he was from Syria. He accompanied Paul on Paul's final visit to Jerusalem. And of course, Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem and spends a couple years there. So the couple of years that Paul is, uh, that, uh, that, that Luke is kind of just hanging out in Jerusalem, waiting for Paul's case to get resolved... During those couple years is probably when he went around and did all of his eyewitness interviews to collect all the materials to write his gospel. His gospel was probably also written right around 60 AD. Who was the audience? The audience was Theophilus, one guy. All the other gospels were written to large groups of people, but Luke wrote his gospel to just one guy. And we don't know anything about Theophilus. Luke refers to him as, oh, great Theophilus, which means he probably had some sort of high position. Chances are Theophilus probably paid for, for Luke's journey. He was probably the patron that supported Luke so that Luke could go do the research and actually write this book. But that's all we know about Theophilus. We don't know anything about him. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. 
This was one of Jesus' favorite ways to reference himself. It actually comes from the book of Daniel. But the name Son of Man refers to Jesus' priority to us as humans and that he came to serve us and to meet the deep spiritual needs of mankind. Therefore, in Luke's gospel, first off, because he's a doctor and a historian, Luke tried very hard to present a chronological biography of the life of Jesus. Every date, every location, there was painstaking detail that Luke added in that none of the other writers did. So if there is a disagreement in the Gospels about the order of the stories, we usually default to Luke and say Luke was the one who was purposely trying to write it in order. The other writers weren't necessarily trying to get the dates right. They were just trying to write the story. So Luke was all about writing a, a chronological biography, but he focuses on Jesus' interaction with humanity. Because Jesus is presented as the Son of Man, he looks at how Jesus interacts with people, especially those on the outside of Jewish society. So the sinners, the outcasts, the women, the blind, the lepers, the beggars, Luke looks at Jesus' interaction with those on the fringe of society. And then finally, we have John. Where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar, John is way out there. His gospel, over 90% of his gospel is unique. It doesn't show up in any of the other three gospels. Why? Because he had a different purpose. He had a different perspective. John was one of the original disciples. He referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had an intimate relationship with Jesus. He was probably the youngest of the 12 disciples, which would explain why he would lean into Jesus more because as a younger man, he still needed a father figure. He was the only one of the inner circle out of Peter, James, and John who wrote a gospel. He wrote his much later, probably between 85 and 95 AD. So this is a good 25 to 30 years after the other three gospels were written. John decides to write his gospel. His audience was new followers of Jesus in Asia Minor. At the time that he wrote his gospel, he was helping to pastor the church at Ephesus. And so as new people were beginning to give their lives to Jesus, he wanted them to have a full picture of who Jesus was. And so he specifically wrote his gospel for new believers. He presents Jesus as the Son of God. His purpose was to show that Jesus was God and offered life to all who believed in him. Therefore, John focuses on Jesus being part of the Trinity. In fact, the very first verse of John, he says Jesus was the word from the beginning. He was a part of the Trinity from the very beginning. He focuses on the miraculous signs that Jesus performed, and he also focuses on the I am statements of Jesus. It's a great study in the book of John. It's just to study the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. All the I am's of Jesus that are in John. And so John wrote his book from a very pastoral perspective. He was trying to pastor new believers. And so he wanted to present Jesus in his fullness as God in the flesh. And that was the purpose of his book. So this is great. We've got four different books written for four different audiences. So if you've got somebody who wants to know about Jesus, well, if they're Jewish, send them to Matthew. If they don't know anything about the Bible, send them to Mark. 
if they're a stickler for details, send them to Luke. And if they just gave their life to Jesus, send them to John. We've got four Gospels written for four different purposes, for four different audiences, so that we have this great picture of who Jesus was and all that he said and did. And then finally, we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts was also written by Luke as a continuation of his gospel. Consider it a sequel. It was a two-part series. You got the gospel of Luke and you have the book of Acts. Some scholars even believe that he wrote it all continuously as one long book and that we split it up later. So if we believe that he wrote it all as one long book, then he, we also would believe that he wrote it in 60 A.D. If you believe that he wrote it as a sequel, then he probably wrote it in 62 A.D. because that's where the book stops. It's the amazing thing about the book of Acts is that it just stops suddenly, right? It's like you're into the story, all this stuff is happening, and all of a sudden it's just like, it's over. Why did that happen? Because Luke caught up to the day. He wrote the whole story up to the day he was writing it, and he's like, well, I'm all caught up. There's nothing else I can write. So the book of Acts includes the ascension of Jesus, the birth of the New Testament church, the expansion of the New Testament church under the original disciples, and then the missionary journeys of Paul as he spread the gospel and planted churches all around the known world. And then the story just ends right before Paul is executed in Rome. The suddenness of the ending reminds us that the story is still being written. Where the book of Acts ends, the story of the church just keeps getting written. And that's where we find ourselves as a part of the story. Somewhere between the book of Acts and the book of Revelation is where we're living. And we're a part of God's story right in the middle of that history. So let's look at this, you guys. Our legacy from Jesus, what I wanted to do is I wanted to find a unique word from Jesus from each gospel, a word from Jesus that appeared only in that gospel. And so I've got four words from Jesus for you today. We're going to go through these, and I believe that God is going to minister to our hearts as we share these words. So let's start with Matthew, a unique word from Matthew. What would Jesus say to us today? He would say the law and the prophets have been fulfilled, not abolished. They have been fulfilled, not abolished. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets. I have come to fulfill them. In fact, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of them should be taken away. Why is this significant? Because if the law and the prophets were abolished, then the Old Testament would be obsolete. There'd be no reason to read it. There'd be no reason to even have it in our Bibles. Our Bibles would just be the New Testament because that's all that would matter. If the law and the prophets were abolished, then none of the standards of godliness in the Old Testament would apply today. And none of the promises of the Old Testament would apply today. 
But Jesus says they're not abolished, they're fulfilled. What does it mean that they're fulfilled? It means that we're not made right with God through the law. The law has been fulfilled, therefore we're only made right with God through Jesus. There is no rule that you can follow to be right with God. Not a single one. The only way to be right with God now is through Jesus because Jesus fulfilled the law. And because the law is fulfilled, we're no longer under obligation to large parts of the law. Things like the animal sacrifices. We don't have to do those anymore. Jesus paid the price once and for all. We don't have to be Jewish to follow God. So we don't have to recognize the feasts. We don't have to have all the men circumcised. We don't have to do any of that because we're not under obligation anymore. We also don't have to follow the ceremonial purity code. Right? The Israelites had this purity code. Most of it's in Leviticus, which is why Leviticus is no fun to read. But, I mean, they had purity rules about if you had a sore on your skin, if a woman was on her period. They even had rules about where to dump your poop. All right? I mean, they just had all sorts of rules that they had to follow. Those rules were not under obligation to them anymore. That was a purity code that was just for the Jewish people. However, because Jesus fulfilled the law but didn't abolish it, the law still reflects the standards of God today. That means that even though we're not under obligation to all of the law, that a lot of the law still reflects the heart of God today, such as the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are a part of the law, but they are still valid today. They still reflect the heart and standards of God. How about all the promises of the prophets? They're still valid today because the law has been fulfilled, not abolished. So we can take hold of the promises of the prophets and say these promises are still for us today. So the law has been fulfilled, not abolished. I've met followers of Jesus who have said to me, I don't read the Old Testament. Old Testament's obsolete, right? Why would I read that? And I think to myself, that's not what Jesus said. Okay, so... um, the law is fulfilled, not abolished. How about in Mark? What would Mark? Uh, what would Jesus say to us in the Gospel of Mark? He would say this: God brings the growth, but you have a critical role to play in the harvest. God brings the growth, but you have a critical role to play in the harvest. In Mark chapter four, Jesus tells this parable. He says, "The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil." And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. God brings the growth, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a part. Right? This is the fascinating mystery of seeds. Right? That seeds, all you have to do is put them in the ground. After that, they know what to do without you. It's fascinating. Just the fact that they know that they're in the ground blows my mind. Right? Seeds don't sprout in a bag. But the moment you stick them in dirt, they know they're in dirt. And they don't even have a brain. How do they know that they're in dirt? And then inside that little seed is all of the genetic code for that little seed to turn into a giant tree, produce fruit. That fruit produces more seeds, which then fall in the ground and reproduce itself. 
That is the mystery of a little tiny seed. And God says that is the same mystery when we consider God bringing spiritual growth into somebody's life. You see, we have a part to play. Our part to play is to stick the seed in the ground. That's it. We sow the seed. How do we sow the seed? We share the word of God. We share the love of God. We pray for people. We talk to people about Jesus. We sow the seed. It is not our responsibility to see the seed grow. God does that without us. See, a lot of times we won't sow the seed because we think we're responsible for the whole deal. Well, I'm not really good at leading people to Jesus, so I'm not going to sow any seed. It's not your job to lead people to Jesus. It's your job to sow the seed. God will transform their hearts. And then we have a second job. It says, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Our job is to plant the seed, reap the harvest. Plant the seed, reap the harvest. Plant the seed, reap the harvest. In between is God's job, not ours. It's not our job to convict people of sin. It's not our job to break people's hearts. It's not our job that people would be drawn unto Jesus. Our job is to sow the seed and reap the harvest. What does reaping the harvest look like? Discipling people when they start coming to church. That's reaping the harvest. So we sow the seed, we disciple people. In between, God does the miraculous work in people's hearts, not us. Listen to this. The success of the Christian message does not depend on human effort or understanding. Though Christians certainly need to scatter the seed, success depends upon divine power. It will succeed precisely because God is active. How about that? Our efforts succeed because God is active. If we sow the seed where God is active, miracles will happen. And it won't be our responsibility. It'll be God doing it. It happens because God is active. We just sow the seed where he's active. We sow the seed. We reap the harvest. In the middle, God does the miraculous work. What would Jesus say to us that's unique to the gospel of Luke? He would say this. He would say, don't stop. Don't stop. God rewards persistence. In Luke chapter 18, Luke begins this, this story by saying this. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose hearts. To pray and not to lose hearts. That we should pray and we shouldn't stop. We should pray and don't give up. Pray and keep on praying. So this is what Jesus said in verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Can we stop right there for a second? Does this not powerfully illustrate the difference between God's law and human law? Right? People came up to Jesus and said to him, what are the greatest commandments in God's law? And Jesus' answer was, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the rest of God's law is built on those two commandments. So all of God's law is built on loving God and loving your neighbor. Human law, apparently you can be a judge in human law and not care about God and not care about people. That's the difference between God's law and human's law. 
All of God's law is built on loving God and loving people. Yet here we have a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Verse 3, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. This woman just kept coming to his door, just kept knocking to his door. He said, no, sorry, ma'am, I can't help you. The next day, she's knocking on his door. I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't help you. Finally, she's, he's like, this lady's going to wear me out. I'm just going to go ahead and help her. You see, the widow represents anybody who is in need, anybody who is in a helpless situation. And for this widow, the only weapon that she had was her persistence. It's the only weapon she had. She didn't have any money. She couldn't pay him. She didn't have any voice because women in this society didn't have a voice. She didn't have any sort of prestige or leverage. She didn't have any sort of position. She didn't have anything. The only weapon she had was persistence. If I just keep knocking, sooner or later he's going to say yes. And in verse 6, the Lord said, Hear what this unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his chosen who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? He says, if an unrighteous judge will eventually give in to persistence, do you not think that your perfect judge in heaven, when you show your persistence, that he won't come to your aid, that he won't answer you, that he won't break through for you? And verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, and there's Luke mentioning the Son of Man, will he find faith on the earth? It's like weird, right at the end of this parable, Jesus just jumps right to the end times when he's going to come back. And Jesus realized from the time he leaves the earth until the time he comes back to the earth, his people are going to face trouble. And the one weapon they have in the face of trouble is persistence. It's going to God over and over again, refusing to stop. He says, when I come back, will I find anybody of faith? What does that mean? It means he needs some people to be persistent in the meantime. And if your prayer hasn't been answered, you know what that means? It means don't stop. We assume the opposite. We think, well, God's not answering my prayer, so I'm going to stop. No, if he's not answering your prayer, that means don't stop. That means he wants you to keep praying. Because he's going to answer soon. Jesus says, don't stop. This is your one weapon when you're feeling helpless, when you're in great need. Your one weapon is your persistence. Keep going to the Father. Keep knocking on the door. Keep asking. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up today. We're going to finish with the Gospel of John. What would Jesus say that's unique to the Gospel of John? Well, like I mentioned earlier, just about everything that Jesus says in the Gospel of John is unique from the other Gospels. But I'm going to keep it real simple and just say this. Jesus would say to us today, I am. That's it. I am. John chapter 8 is a, a, a fun chapter to read um, because Jesus is just having constant conflict with the Jewish leaders. 
And I'm totally a conflict resolution guy, so I love reading chapters like chapter 8. And at the end of the chapter, verse 56, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. If you remember the very first sermon in this teaching series when we talked about Moses, that when God was speaking to Moses out of the burning bush and he says to God, Who shall I tell them sent me? God's answer was, you tell them that I am sent you. And now fast forward here to Jesus. And they say, how could you say that Abraham rejoiced to see you? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham was like 2,000 years ago. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. What he was saying to the Jewish people is, I am the same God that was speaking to Moses out of that bush, and I am the same God today. That's why they picked up stones to throw at him, because to claim to be God was blasphemy. They were going to execute him right there on the spot for committing blasphemy, but he was able to make himself disappear because, well, you know, he's God. So he got away, and they didn't hit him with any rocks. He says, I am and that is a fascinating name of God because it means that he is eternally present. He is always in the right now. God is not bound by time. He doesn't change over time. Time doesn't scare God. It doesn't wear God out. Time doesn't affect God. He is eternally present. We live in this timeline and God lives up here above the timeline. He is not bound by time as we know it. Right? We could get really deep and start thinking, well, you know, God could be everywhere all the time. But yeah, but God could also be any time all the time, at any time. Whew, chew on that one for a while. God is eternally present. He says, I am. I am always right now. I am always right in this moment of your life. I know exactly what's happening in your life. I am present. I am here. And I am God. And I am for you. Amen. Will you stand with me today? I'm going to call a little audible here. God's just been kind of moving on my heart. I'm going to invite any of my elders and deacons and their spouses. If you're ready to pray today, I'm just going to ask you to come up here and stand up here up front with me. I just believe that God is calling us into a time of ministry right now. God is saying, I am here. I am present. I am ready for whatever need you have to bring to me. I am. Are you feeling dead inside? I am the resurrection. You need guidance? I am the good shepherd. Are you hungering for something more in your life? I am the bread of life. Is your spirit dried up on the inside? I am the water, and if you drink it, you will never thirst. Are you confused and you don't know which way to go? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. I am. Whatever you bring to me today, I am. I am here for you, and I am here to meet every need. Are you sick today? He says, I am the healer. 
Are you feeling weak today? He says, I am strong. You need breakthrough today. He says, I am the one to bring it. I am. So we go into this worship song and we're going to sing the great I am. I want to invite you to step out in faith right now. Whatever your need is, I just want you to come forward, find one of our elders or deacons up here and just ask them to pray for you. And let's believe that the prayer of faith will bring healing, will bring power, will bring comfort, will bring anointing, it will bring the miraculous, it will bring strength to your family, it will bring restoration to the things that are broken in your life. Jesus says, I am. Whatever your problem is right now, I am. Come right now.